Petersfield's Shine Radio. Shine Radio's Growing Together with Claire Venice and Steve Amos is supported by Alitex. Modern Victorian glass houses made in South Harting. Welcome to Growing Together. I've been left to my own devices once again as Claire's left me for two days this time. Not just one day, but two days. She's gone up to Gardener's World Live up in Birmingham. There's eight interviews she's got lined up. And it sounds really interesting who she's going to see and uh, I look forward to hearing from her. I've come to Gardener's World Live at the NEC in Birmingham where I'm going to meet with a number of gardening experts here at the show. Some with show gardens and some here to give talks and some with both. So really looking forward to the day here and sharing their knowledge with you. I've come to the beautiful garden of Lucy Hutchins. Hi Lucy. Hi, it's nice to have you in the garden. I'm so thrilled to actually be in your garden. I've wandered around and had a look. Now the garden is called the Secret Homestead. That's right. Everything you have here, you have grown. Most things, so not the trees and the shrubs, because that would have been asking a little bit too much of me. <laughs> but yes, basically over 90% of what's in the garden I've grown myself, because it, you know, it's all well and good me saying I want to inspire people to grow food, and, and that's that's what I want to inspire with the garden. But unless people look at it and feel that it's something that they can actually do, it's not going to reach that that goal. So I wanted to, to create a garden that yes was beautiful and yes was aspirational, but was also achievable for people to do. So I decided that I would grow the plants myself. I also had a tiny budget, so it was kind of partly that and, and share that whole journey with people. So it's not that it's been easy, it has been a real challenge, but I've done it and I've done it single-handedly. So if I can do it, you can do it. Now, I follow you on Instagram. You have quite a large following on Instagram. You're known as She Grows Veg, and you do indeed grow veg on quite a large scale. I do. I do, I do like a veg plant. <laughs> I grow a lot of food. How long? How long have you been growing? Well, it's funny because I didn't come from a background in horticulture at all. I guess I'm relatively uh, latecomer to, to horticulture. So I used to work in the fashion industry and I used to be a jewellery designer, designing jewellery for people like Cheryl Cole and Kylie Minogue. So a wildly different life to the one I leave right now. And all through that time when I was an art student and when I was working in fashion, I grew some edible plants. I had no interest in anything that was just pretty. It didn't have a use. I wasn't interested. Um, but if you could eat it in one way or another, I just found it really, really inspiring and wanted to have a go. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and I think if you'd asked me at the time, I wouldn't even really have registered it as a hobby. But uh, a few years down the line, I'd, I'd left fashion because I didn't enjoy what I was doing. And it, it was a not a good fit for me industry-wise and I was going through a really stressful period as we all do from time to time and so I, I needed something that was really removed from the situation so it was to, to the growing food that I turned because it was just something that really made me happy and I love it and I still do and I've since then retrained in horticulture and garden design and I started the Instagram and sharing this whole journey and it's been it's been amazing I've never looked back I can honestly say oh how brilliant can you explain what inspired the garden that you've grown here today absolutely so I'm passionate about getting more people to grow food but generally I find everything to do with grow your own and food growing is portrayed in a really kind of homespun and traditional image and that image just doesn't resonate with everyone it's a lovely thing and for a lot of people they really like it but how do you get those people that don't 
aspire to that kind of thing to grow food and I think a lot of ornamental gardeners would fall into that category they really love flowers and they want beauty and they want something ornamental but that image of grow your own just doesn't resonate with them so it was for that reason that I decided to design the garden so it is a fully edible 100% edible ornamental garden so on one hand you've got a load of quite commonly grown garden plants ornamental traditionally ornamental garden plants in here that people don't necessarily realize you can eat and then on the other hand you have got more traditional recognizable conventional vegetable plants in here but I've selected everything in its most ornamental form so the most ornamental varieties that you can get so that people start to see the beauty of veg again because I think people just see vegetables they don't see it as a beautiful plant anymore and actually some of these plants are really really beautiful and you can see that on your garden because there is a gorgeous combination mixed in the borders here of all the different plants there's flowers there are other hostas actually I didn't realize you could eat hostas <laughs> what can. part of the hosta can you eat so you would approach a hosta in exactly the same way you would asparagus I have to say that's probably the plant that most people have been surprised about I think because everyone has them and everyone's gone you can eat hostas <laughs> and you can yeah so um an established clamp you'd take a proportion of those initial spears that appear in spring um, tastes quite similar to asparagus I would actually say it tastes slightly better and then the benefit of it as well is for the rest of the year you have a much more attractive plant to look at that's interesting so don't pick the leaves for your salad you can eat the leaves okay. at any time of year but they get a little bit stringy so you're definitely going to do best with those initial spears absolutely fascinating well it's really creative and that must be your style because it definitely shows in the garden here now one thing that is new here at the gardens world live is the we grow stage Indeed. which has been inspired by you yeah so i had a conversation with garden as well just because i feel i feel very honored to be part of the instagram gardening community there's an amazing community on online and for a whole new set of gardeners and young gardeners and young-minded gardeners because um, i don't think i'm really class as young anymore <laughs> but i think it's all in the, it's a mindset um but, you know, there's an amazing community online and that's their go-to to a lot of people. They don't start with the gardening books and they don't start with watching the, the TV programmes. They start with social media gardening and that's where they get their knowledge from, from people just sharing their experiences, which is a really lovely thing. So what I wanted to do was create a place which acknowledged this amazing community of new growers and gave them a place to come and, and meet in real life. And also here people who are well respected from that background from social media and talking about subjects that are really really important to our community the things that we really want to learn about so i'm really really excited that we've managed to put it together the lineup looks incredible it's right next door to your garden hay bales are there looking very welcoming so lucy congratulations on a number of levels and also the garden has been awarded a, a silver award which is brilliant <laughs> enjoy the show i really hope it's hugely successful for you and i look forward to listening to the talks on the stage as well thank you so much it's lovely to chat with you I'm now joined by Jason Williams, who is known on Instagram as the Cloud Gardener UK. Thank you so much for having me. So have you had a good day here today? It's been spectacular. I, I've managed to do a talk over on the She Grows uh, stage with Lucy. Um, and I've managed to go and catch some of the gardens. So yes, it's been great. <laughs> What's been your favorite part? Well, my favorite part of any flower show is always meeting people. And sometimes when you create content on social media, you don't 
remember that actually people watch it. <laughs> so sometimes when people come up and they say, oh, I've been watching you, it, it's really nice. And it's really nice to actually make a connection. And then, of course, uh, to see the gardens and all the work that the garden designers and landscapers have put in. And, you know, this is something I don't think that people talk about enough. When you see these show gardens, it's really, really important, A, to speak to the designers because each garden has got its very own story. And as a garden designer myself, I know that we pick each plant, each part, each element of that garden for a reason. So when we come to the show and we get to talk to people, we really want to share that story. And oftentimes there are elements of each garden that you can take away and implement in your very own homes. Now, talking of own homes, you garden on your balcony <laughs> and I have been following you on Instagram and you do a lot of container gardening yes so um, I have an 18th floor balcony garden it's south facing it's super super hot on a sunny day and what, what I've been able to do today is do a talk all about container gardening and sharing some of my tips and tricks that I've picked up over the past couple of years and also give people a bit of hope because sometimes gardening isn't all perfect not everything goes 100% to plan and just showing people different ways that they can circumvent some of the issues that might crop up in their spaces. Ooh, so give us some tips then. What, what kind of plants are you growing on your balcony? Well, so in my first couple of years gardening, I was trying to replicate what everybody else was doing at the ground level. And turns out that my space is just different and so I have to think about things a little bit differently so I've switched over the past two years some of my planting to incorporate some evergreens but also some alpines into my planting because actually alpines are used to being in mountainous regions they can get knocked about by the wind and they'll be okay whereas something that's a little bit more delicate like a sunflower doesn't really last on my balcony so I've had to have a few mindset shifts and yeah it was great to be able to share some of that how interesting you're talking about that of course I wouldn't have thought about that too and unless you're in that environment why would you think about that so how do you create environments for pollinators that high up is that possible yeah so it's really really difficult actually because we don't have the same access to pollinators or beneficial insects as others do on balconies especially when you get up to as high as i do and in fact my number one pollinator on my garden are not bees i've never even seen a butterfly in my garden but i do have flies and flies are my number one pollinator. So I've had to learn to change my planting to make the flowers really open, accessible, normally single flowers, in order to attract the right pollinators up onto my space. Fascinating. (laughs) What made you want to have a garden on your balcony? So I started gardening during lockdown and the only thing that we could do was go to a supermarket or go to a garden centre. And so I picked up a couple of plants in the garden centre and started my, my garden in essence I just wanted to make my space just that little bit nicer and it turns out that when you become a gardener when you go to a garden centre and you pick up a, one or two plants something happens that your basket just somehow ends up being full <laughs> I've got no idea how this happens every single time I go to a nursery or a garden centre but it just seems to happen and so my garden just evolved <laughs> it is funny how that happens but it does almost every single time <laughs> every single time and one top tip if you are coming to a flower show always go on the last day because at 4 p.m they normally have a sell-off and they are selling all of these plants at discounted rates even some of the show guards may be getting rid of some of their plants too so yeah top tip there i've heard it can be quite a fight 
Honestly, so I was at Chelsea last year and that bell rang at 4pm and these beautiful gowns and, you know, very classy hats, all of a sudden it just turned into a royal rumble. <laughs> I just remember like clinging onto my balcony like, no, this is not for sale. And people were standing there haggling with me. I'm like, it's not for sale, honestly. <laughs> Well, you have got another show garden coming up soon, which is a garden you're creating for an urban area. That's right. Are you allowed to say a bit more about it? I can indeed. The press release has has gone out this week, so I finally can. And I am creating a show garden at the RHS Tatton Park Flower Show this year. It's called the RHS and MEN Ginnell Garden. And for those of you who are not up north, a Ginnell Garden is what we call down south an alleyway. And it's going to be around about 40 metres long, so it's pretty big. It's going to have several show gardens coming off of it. Uh, (laughs) And it's going to be fenced, so you are going to feel like you are truly immersed in a long alleyway. And then right afterwards, the garden is going to be relocated to Moss Side in Manchester. And I've also committed to mentoring the community for the next 12 months because it's really, really important to me that if I'm going to relocate such a massive garden to a community, that it has success. And I'm hoping to get local schools and uh, GPs for social prescribing involved in the, the garden. And I'm also going to be growing some foods from other countries because where this garden is being relocated, there are lots of students, lots of renters, lots of refugees. And this particular alleyway has a rather transient community so I'm hoping that by growing some foods from other countries they're going to be little labels with the English words for plants but also Arabic as well just to help bring everybody together and I really hope that the garden shows that gardening can unite a community but also there will be different elements of the garden. So there will be a wildflower farm. There's also going to be a little tortoise farm as well, where I'm growing some, some foods for tortoises because there's somebody on the, on the alleyway who has a tortoise. And again, the idea is to show that you can have multiple different ideas on what gardening means to you, but all together, the community can create a space that's really, really beautiful. Wow. <laughs> Can't wait to see what it looks like. There is something about getting a gardening community together i think that everyone can learn from each other get involved together what a fabulous idea thank you so much are you going to show how the garden is being created on your social media are we allowed to follow that that journey with yes. you so episode one actually went out this week so on my youtube channel i'm going to be doing a weekly series where you get to come behind the scenes with me and build the whole garden you'll see some of the trials and tribulations with it but I'm also each week going out to see a a different set of Ginnell Gardens so I've been to see quite a few throughout the northwest and I've vlogged it and I'm going to show you what others have done and how creative they are with their spaces brilliant how do we find you online so you can find me on my website is cloudgardeneruk.co.uk or on social media at instagram facebook twitter tiktok cloudgardeneruk you can find him everywhere (laughs) you can even find him at a gardener's world show (laughs) and an rhs one soon exactly thank you so much for telling me more about your garden no worries how lovely to bump into vicky lincoln here and to see the show garden that she spoke about in our last gardener's world podcast at the Spring Fair. Vicky, hello, lovely to see you again. It's lovely to see you too. It's great to see a friendly face. Oh, thank you. Well, congratulations on the garden. It's called Urban Oasis and it has been awarded with a silver merit. 
This is your first proper show garden, isn't it? Yeah, it is my first proper show garden. As every time we do this, it's a massive learning experience. It's good fun, it's hard work, but really tough to get a silver merit. And to basically to create a garden that has, just in the first day of the show, created so many conversations with people about wildlife and people walking past and doing exactly what we wanted to do, saying, I could do that. I could make those bee posts, I could put a hedgehog hole in my fence. And that's what we wanted to do, is just inspire people to make some little changes to their gardens. So it's worked well so far, and we've got three days more, so it's three days more worth of people that hopefully we can get those messages out to. Oh, brilliant. It's great that it's an inspirational garden. Talking about your bee posts, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, is that correct? Eight? Eleven. Eleven. There's some small ones tucked around the pond. Oh, I can see, yes, there's a little one there as well. So eleven wooden posts of different heights throughout your garden that have got holes in yeah so we drill holes of uh, different widths from sort of three mil up to eight mil holes and that basically attracts a range of different types of solitary bees and other creatures so we've got things like sawflies we've been watching all day we're trying to get some video of it at the moment we've actually had bees deposit pollen in the holes so we think we're going to have quite a lot of guests by sunday (laughs) who will have moved into our garden we're going to be moving the garden into a permanent home with the wildlife trust in solihull next week so it could be a little bit interesting moving all those guests but I'm sure we'll find a way oh my goodness of course yes not only moving the garden but the guests too (laughs) was that something you thought might happen I've seen previously that you know in show gardens we do find bees are pretty smart about realizing there's a great new food source in town so they move in but actually seeing them move in in a way that they could stay so quickly it's fantastic to see it and to have that vote but we didn't expect that at all (laughs) so um, yeah it feels like a stamp of approval yeah absolutely good point well you mentioned that the garden is going to go on to live its full life at the Warwickshire Wildlife Trust. Now, how are you going to transplant the garden there? So what we'll be doing is basically packaging all the plants up very carefully, one by one, like we did when we bought them here. We're going to do it section by section, so quite orderly. We've got the planting plan anyway to guide us. We've also got lots of lovely photos. And we'll basically move each section with our volunteers and then lay it out at the new site. There's not much hardscape in this garden because we've used as much low-impact and recycled material anyway. All of our gravels recycled, our ponds made of recycled rocks. So we'll move all those elements, install them and then pop the plants back in. And that will be our chance to hand the garden over to the volunteers who will run the garden going forward. So it becomes theirs. Nice that your garden is going to continue. Now, as a garden designer, this is a new career for you, isn't it? That you've been studying at Sparshot College. How much longer do you have left? Um, so I have, um, whilst I was building this garden, I, I did unfortunately miss my last class, but I have basically finished. So this is me. I am now a garden designer. I've got a couple of projects on, but I will be. I'm hoping to find more opportunities to collaborate with other designers because I really enjoy working on the bigger projects, collaborating, but also just starting to work on more designs on my own as well with new clients. Oh, what a fantastic start, Vicky. Brilliant to see you here. Best of luck for the gardening future. Thank you very much. Continuing down the show gardens outside, I've come to a beautiful garden called Escaping Seasons of the Mind that incorporates plants throughout the year, starting in autumn, going to winter, spring and summer in a circular fashion like the seasons do. And I'm here with one of the designers, Lily. Hi, Lily. How has the garden been received here? The garden's been received really, really well. We've had um, a fantastic response from all of the public that just love the fact that it's something different. It's a 
small space, so it's only six metres by six metres. But you've got quite a lot to look at in the garden, so you can see it from all the different aspects. You can walk around the garden and actually be able to look into it and peer in and see something different every time you look at it. And you've got a lovely water feature in the middle there as well, which is making it feel ever so calm. <laughs> There's a different vibe when you go inside, isn't there? Yes, so we, we call that our well of reflection. And the idea is, as you move through the seasons and journey through the seasons, you finally come to summer where you can sit, be calm, be peaceful and reflect on the entire journey that you've taken to reach that point where you're fully immersed in your garden. We're now joined by John, who is also one of the designers here. Hello, John. Now, you were the mind behind the structures in the garden and created them. So can you explain a bit more about the thought process behind these beautiful structures? So when we built the garden, we sort of built it with the two ideas that the highest suicide rates in autumn and 90% of people spend the time indoors. So that sort of, when we designed the garden and we segregated it into sections, we wanted to make autumn feel quite daunting and a bit overbearing without it being, you know, too much. So we came up with this idea of having these core 10 pillars that come over your head and make you feel a little bit uneasy. And the idea is as you move around the seasons, they slowly dropping size and feel like they're pushing back and it becomes a little bit more aerated and then the final pillar so there's 12 all together the final 12th being the bench so that when you sat in summer you can then sit and reflect on the seasons and journey. So now this garden is also special in another way in that it was also designed and built by people under the age of 35. Why was that important to you, Lily? So John and I actually met earlier in this year when we attended a pie and pint night. And soon after that, John actually joined the Young People and Horticulture Association Committee. And we started talking. We started talking about gardens and that we were both interested in doing one. And as part of that, being both on the committee, we realised that actually having that team around us and making sure that everyone that was involved in the decisions, being under 35, meant that we could really empower a younger generation and show what's possible as well. We can achieve something great and something wonderful. John's company, Outdoor Living Gardens, that built the structures, built the walls, installed the structures as well, really have just created a space that is just perfect for planting in as well. Tell us a bit more about the Young People's Horticultural Association then, John. So that's an organisation, a group of people under 35 year old, and it's just a way of getting people together in the industry, allowing you to bounce ideas off, give support to when I go to the pub with my friends we don't sit around and talk about horticulture and that's what it's allowed I've made a lot of friends a lot of live friends who like Lily for instance who we have common interests in we can talk about a passion and I think that's why it's really good and in terms of the age thing about being under 35 I was very lucky in the fact that my grandparents encouraged me to be outdoors I've always worked outdoors, I've always been outdoors and I think with young people these days, especially with like technology and now working from home, people don't get outdoors anymore, you don't socialise, you know, you work from home behind your computer, you don't go to the office and you don't see people and interact and I think that's why it's quite important for it all to be built by people under 35 because it's promote that young generation still to get outside and even if you've got a small space there's a lot you can do with it. And how frequently do you meet with the organisation? So the YPHA has a committee of 10 people including John and myself all of which are volunteers on top of full-time jobs and also show gardens. <laughs> and within that, we try and make it as regular as possible. So every month we have an online Zoom meeting where we bring in a guest speaker to be able to talk about a different topic within the industry. We've had some incredible people come and do that. We at the moment have two 
formal in-person meetups a year. The last one was in February at Coolings Garden Centre where Adam Frost actually came and gave a talk to everyone and we had um, a marketing session and a tour of the nursery and the garden centre itself as well. And the next one is to be announced soon but we'll be in the West Midlands around this area, which is quite exciting. How can people find out more about the association and, and possibly join? We're on social media and there's, um, there's a website as well that you can go on and if you, you know, search for YPHA. I'd just encourage anyone under 35 to, to join. It's just a nice, fun environment. It's a really supportive group and yeah, made some good friends from it really. I mean, just to say as well, even in our garden, we had people who came and surprised us through the YPHA to help out. We had Dan yesterday who came, bless him, and washed all our paving down for us and watered our plants. And we had Jim, who um, works at Alaskate, who came and helped us with this amazing planting scheme. So yeah, I think it, you've got, it's that community, that real feel of community and people wanting to help and support each other, which I think if you know that's what you're looking for, then I'd definitely say join. We go a little bit more than just the networking side as well. It's about supporting everyone through the industry and showing that it is a career path and showing all the different opportunities. And um, one of the things as the treasurer that I focus on is making sure that um, any bursary or opportunities for young people in horticulture to be able to advance their career or advance their knowledge of the industry is really important to be able to share with them through, as John was mentioning, the network, which gives instant impact to everyone. So you can drop a question into the conversation and you've got 560 people there to give you an answer. That sounds like an incredible network. It's been wonderful talking to you both. Sue Kent, who's joined me near the green room. It's a little bit echoey, but I'm delighted to see you, Sue. And first of all, congratulations on your beautiful border garden, which was awarded last night before the show began with a platinum award. Hello, Claire. Thank you so much. Yes, and thank you for congratulations. I'm still not fully absorbing the fact that I've achieved such an award, but I'm very glad and I think it'll sink in over the time. I've seen your garden and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's pink. It's called In the Pink. Can you explain what inspired the garden? Well, the category is Beautiful Borders and the theme for this year was My Escape and I thought about, about what makes me feel as if I can escape the world and I used to be a massage therapist and I had a clinic that had a lot of pink in and it made all my clients very relaxing colour for some and also I've got two rooms in the house that are painted pink, the rest are painted blue and I just love going in there, I feel very nurtured so I thought, well, pink makes me feel escape. I love to paint badly, but I, I, I do it anyway. I paint flowers in the garden and I paint garden art and I have a little room. So that, when I go in there, I'm very escape from the world. And the other thing is when you smell beautiful flowers, your mind is completely taken away and you escape you know, whatever thoughts you have. So I thought I'd bung the three together and create a pink border. But I was, I was very nervous because having a monochromatic colour scheme, oh, obviously you've got green, it can be quite difficult to do to get those tones right. And also I didn't just want it mixed pink, I wanted it like a, a dip dye dress. So you start with your dark colours and you go right up to your light pinks. And Richard from Farmyard Nurseries, he helped me at Hampton Court, he grew all the flowers for me and then came up. Because I can't actually plant them myself where they're in full bloom to show quality because I damage them. Because my arms are so short, once I get near to something I can snap a head off, you know, my chest will snap a head off before my hands reach things. And also if I was doing them with my feet, you know, I'm too clunky. So Rich does the planting and he does the growing and he's not a pink man, shall we say. So we've had some very interesting discussions, but he's coming around, he's coming around to colour. You know, it took about three days to get all the pinks together to work well. 
Um, so I'm, I am really pleased because it was a bit of a risk, you know what I mean? I thought, I haven't seen this done, and but it's great to have that trial and error option, isn't it? To try something like that. And I, I would have fallen on my sword if I'd failed, you know, but, you know, you've got to push the boundaries sometimes and try. Yeah, and that's the best way to learn as yeah. well, isn't it? You, you can't do it in your own house. It would cost you too much money, wasn't it, to like rip everything out and plant it all pink and what if it went wrong? So this is a great opportunity. Good point, good point. Well, in your garden, you have a number of roses, David Austin roses and peonies as well. Estrancias were also a key feature. And we've got some beautiful, deep coloured estrancias and they run all the way along. And we've used annuals because I think when you're setting out a garden, you know they're going to grow much bigger. So in the meantime, you've got gaps and you don't want weeds. Well, I hate weeding. I'd rather have flowers. And of course, it's much nicer for insects to have it as flowery as possible. So we've used a lot of diasica and, and nemesia, which lasts in my garden because it's quite mild. We've used that so that in real life, that garden would have time to develop and then gradually plant less annuals. But I love annuals and I think it's a great take home for people. Fill your spaces, you know, while you're waiting for your perennials to grow. And I think that's a really important point about your garden as well. It's doable. It's doable. It can inspire people to try maybe a border of the same colour in different shades as well. Yeah, varying heights. That's why I look. We had it all the central height and then the, the lower ones around the edge and it looked really boring. And then we just put this sea of low ones in the middle to break up the different colours and that really worked well. And I was talking to a lady and she was going, oh, I love this. I never thought of doing this. And she said, I could dig up everything I've got and rearrange it. So, you know, it's, if you go and do an audit of what you already got and then you the autumn you dig it up to what colours you know you want to put together you can change the whole thing around with perennials they're quite easy to change and so you can play with colour you can do it at home you might have lots of stuff already there that you can then change about nice idea actually nice idea well mentioning your painting it is beautiful that you you actually did the painting on glass with nail varnish. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I wanted an area in the, in the, within the border to paint. So there's an easel and there's a painting on. And because it, we didn't know the weather, I wanted something that wouldn't run in the rain and that wouldn't, the canvas wouldn't damage. So I painted it on glass, but I used nail varnish. Because it's got a semi-translucent quality, you can see through. So it's to give the hint that this is an artist's garden. So people can just see through the painting, see the flowers behind it, the flowers on the painting. So I'm very pleased with that. It's and, really effective. And the judges really like that. It's nice to have something different in the garden. Yeah. People have sculptures and things in the garden, but that is absolutely beautiful. And you know, I think maybe glass paintings in the garden might take off soon. I, yeah. I, well, my husband's got his eye on that. It's an unfinished painting, so I'm going to finish it. And he's trying to work out how he can incorporate it in the garden. You know, it's tough and glass, so it'd be fun. Got to do it, I think. Yeah, and maybe more. You never yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> now you're doing a number of talks here um, at the show. You're also doing one on the tool stage, talking yeah. about gardening tools. Yeah, but they suddenly realised, of course, I'm a bit of a queen of the gardening tools. Anyone who mm. follows me on Instagram, if I get a tool that I like, I share it. Because I've got a lot of people with disabilities or dexterity function problems follow me. And so, you know, they love the tools. Normally, when I do my talks, I have a whole section on tools, but we haven't got a screen, you know, so I've got to sort of explain the tool, which is a bit difficult. I've got a couple with me. So, yes, I'm just doing 15 minutes and also seeing if anybody else has got a good tool they can recommend. But, yeah, I do like my tools and talking about them. I'm talking with the Scriber Lounge about the garden. I'm on my border chatting about my border. Well, it's fascinating following your growing journey on Gardener's World. Uh, you're a delight to watch and a real inspiration, Sue. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. I'm joined now by Chris Collins, who has been in the gardening community and the gardening world 
for a number of years. Chris, it's really lovely to well, see you. Thanks for inviting me along. So, what are you doing here at Gardeners World Live? Oh, I'm wearing a few hats. I do walks in the morning to show the show gardens, talk to the designers. It's a really nice insight into Gardeners World Live. I'm doing a bit of stuff at British Garden Centre, so I'll be on the stages chatting away. And then finally, I'm doing stuff with Garden Organic, who's one of my sort of biggest clients, and they've got a little garden here, and I'll do some stuff on the stand there promoting natural organic gardening methods. And that's your passion? Oh, it is, yeah. Well, I've always been as organic as I can be, but I've always kind of wanted to use more natural methods, and I've always liked a, a very varied garden, a sort of biodiverse garden, so it kind of fits in with my philosophy, really. Now, do you grow vegetables and flowers, or are you a vegetable man? Oh, no, I'm, I'm very much a potager. I have a balcony, it's about six metres long, about a metre and a half wide. All my hanging baskets will be packed with tumbler tomatoes, with petunias, with herbs. I very much melt it all together on the allotment. I have my veg, but I also I sow a lot of hardy annuals along the sides of them, so I get these pollinator rows as well. So I love it to montage. I really like that kind of horticulture. I do too. It sounds like I need to come and visit your garden. It sounds amazing. And it's interesting you mentioned about the hanging basket with the tumbling toms yeah. and, and other flowers in it. For the first time ever, I've created a vegetable hanging basket. And I got a bit ridiculed actually yeah. by a few people, but it's the best hanging basket. I think we're starting to realise you don't need masses of space to do it. You can do it in containers, small containers and that. There's nothing like a bit of fresh veg out of the pot or out of the ground. You get very much addicted to it then, to a certain degree because the taste is so much better than it than a supermarket vegetable. So once you get going, it's very Moorish, I think. It is, yeah, and there yeah. seems to be quite a movement, particularly this year I've noticed, of people wanting to, to grow their own more. Yes, yeah. If you look at the costs, the cost of living, all that's coming into play. Also, I think you know people realise doing a bit of gardening is good for your mind. I think you know, maybe they realised that when COVID was on and we were all locked down, people realised that. There's nothing to lose with it really, is there? It's, and I think once you sow a bit of seed and you get a result from it, I always say to kids, I go, well, if you can sow and grow a seed, I've got you. You'll be a gardener for good. Well, it's interesting you mentioned kids. I was going to talk about your book. You have a Grow Your Own for Kids book. Yeah, well, I've been involved with children's gardening for a long time, because obviously it was my Blue Peter days. So what happened with that is I was, when I was on screen, at the same time, there was the big Healthy Kids campaign of what, what they were eating, obviously, because there was problems with obesity that sort of thing so I hooked up with people like Jamie Oliver a lot of corporate stuff and we went into schools I, mean, I think one year I did 220 schools in one year so we were going all over the country doing we were going as far as Germany actually we were doing stuff abroad as well and that was all about seed to plate getting kids to understand where their food comes from get them out healthy it ticks so many boxes it's good physical exercise you can bring in curriculum maths biology all the sciences so it was kind of about going out and using garden which people don't really realize about it it's an amazing tool socially as well as the fact we like to grow plants individually. It contributes to society a lot. I think the, the work through schools really lights that up. And how is that coming along? Is the people changing the way that they're viewing education? I think it is. I think intellect comes in different guises, doesn't it? So a kid that was sitting and passed 10 O-levels because it's all oh, his shield, going to retain information, isn't the same kid who's good with his hands. So I think we need to look at it much more laterally. In fact, we need tradesmen more in a way. So I think we need to make provisions for other skills, for other intellects, and gardening's a good way forward for that. I think, and I, I mean, when I was at school, I didn't like sitting in a classroom. I wanted to be out climbing trees. And certainly teachers have come on board with it. One of the things you have to be careful with it is they've already got a lot on their plate. So you try to keep the projects you do with them simple, easy to do, inexpensive, and you try to tie it in with curriculum so it becomes an asset to a teacher rather than just another add-on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there is always a connection, isn't there, really, with gardening. You can connect it to pretty much anything. Yes, yeah, you can. You, can, you bring it, I mean, it's just such an underrated subject matter, isn't it? 
you know, it ticks so many boxes. Socially, it does. You know, mental health, it does. Growing food, education, it's into all of these areas. Really, I, I find it very underestimated subjects. Really, and one of the things I do with kids is I show them the moon window, which is just a round hole in a wall, really. And I say about you sit here and you don't have any distractions. You don't, you know, because always someone's trying to sell you something or give you something or get your attention. You've got to step away from that sometimes. And I was saying, you sit in that window and you'll notice more detail in the trees and the sky, the bird song. And that's where you have your best ideas, when you're in that zone. And I think that's quite an important thing to say. So how did you get into gardening? What inspired you to well, start? Well, it was interesting. My great-granddad was a big gardener, but I was, you know, I was a bit of a, bit of a tear away in my teens. So I can't lie about that. So I left home very, very early, um, a couple of days after my 16th birthday. And I did about three months, and I knew that I was not in a good place. So I went and said, oh, well, I don't care what I do as long as I'm outside. Because obviously, coming back to not being able to sit in the classroom, and I got an apprenticeship with Brighton Parks, um, and I, the first two weeks I applied a Cornish elm, which is a really rare tree, still alive, it's 40 foot tall now. And I put that tree in the ground and I just knew it was for me. And I would have never believed the career I've gone to have since then. You know, it's just been an amazing experience all the way through. But I'm a plants person to the core. That's what, what keeps me interested in it. Well, your passion shines through. Yeah. I mean, just to finish off, yeah. Blue Peter Gardner. Yeah. How it's, was that? It was amazing. They were always dressing me up. Or, or one thing when they kept making me visit smelly places. So they'd say to the kids, where can we sell Tim Chris next, that smelly? And, uh, <laughs> so I went through about a year of, uh, of getting that inflicted on me, which is a right laugh. And so a lot of the projects that I teach in schools and in my book, etc., have all come about thinking of short, quick ideas that will keep the kids interested and, and, and produce results. So what next for you then? What's next on the cards? I'm, I'm really into the community-based stuff. I like going to speak to communities, to groups. To, to, you know, I, I see it as a very um, a social adhesive. I see horticulture as social adhesive. So I've got many things going on. I work with Veg Power, Garden Organic, and ISS Education. So I, I, I interwork all these people and it's just getting the word out, really. That's what I try to do. Chris, very entertaining talking to you. Thank you, Thank you so very much. much. It's lovely to be joined by Stephanie Hafferty, who is going to be on the We Grow stage talking about her no-dig homestead. Stephanie, is this Hello. the first time you've been here to Gardeners World Live? No, I've come for quite a few years. So I've been speaking here, I think maybe four or five years. And this is the first time that the We Grow stage has been here at the show? Yes, yes. So this is brand new. Normally, I would have been speaking on the National Allotment stage. So it's lovely speaking on Lucy's because I really like the idea behind her secret homestead garden because I've been growing veg for decades and um, I'm setting up my homestead in Wales and I've been homesteading for years and I do things in one way and I think it's really nice to see a different angle to it. It opens it up and makes it more accessible for people and gives people different ideas. One of the great things about um, it being next to Lucy's garden is she grew most of the plants herself. They look like plants that have been grown at home, not like plants that have been grown for a show which is brilliant because people can look and go, oh, actually, my peas are all right. That is how peas look in June when the weather's been dry. I think that is really helpful because people worry so much about, is this right, is this wrong? So the more diversity you have with different kinds of gardens, the better, I think, for people coming and 
feeling confident about growing themselves. Now, you mentioned your homestead. Yes. It's a no-dig homestead. I'm really interested to hear more about how you garden then, Stephanie. Okay, so I've been doing no-dig gardening for, I think, about 15 years. I've always gardened organically. And before then, I was following like my Jeff Hamilton organic gardening book. And so I was digging, because that's what we were taught to do. But when my children were quite young, and I couldn't do much gardening because I had three small children, you know, you just do what you can. I had a veg garden, but it wasn't as big as it's ended up being. <laughs> they needed somewhere to play. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I would go to green fairs and that kind of thing with my children and see permaculture gardens. So I had this idea of different ways of growing. And then I learned about no-dig gardening. And back then, it just felt like a really good way of growing because you're not harming the wiggly worms, as simple as that. That's how I thought of it. And also I could see that it was a really um, easy way of growing, which reduced the amount of work you needed to do. And single mum, three kids working for, you know, all of those things, time was really important. And I'm trying to grow as much food as possible because we're skin. So I had my home garden and an allotment. So that's how I got into it. It was like, I'm wanting to produce as much food as I can affordably. So with no dig, it's essentially, you don't dig over every year and instead add some mulch. So it's working with the soil biology. And it is actually nature's way of growing if you think about a natural environment. So no dig is a really ancient method. It's practiced across the world and how you do it very much depends on the environment in which you're living. With the knowledge we have now about the importance of soil health, it is such a brilliant way of growing to help with the health of our planet because you're keeping the soil ecology intact. All the different creepy crawlies and mycorrhizal fungi as well, everything is thriving and living the way it should be. Whereas when you dig, you're basically, you're killing it all. That is essentially what happens. If you've done, just dug over your garden and you're thinking, oh my goodness, no, what have I done? Um, all of this ecology is still in the surrounding area. And if you then stop digging, start making your compost heaps to make some nice compost mulch, everything will gradually recolonate. So it's a positive message of, just like I did, I used to dig my allotment, 15 years ago stopped and it all recovers and another brilliant thing is the soil our soil is the biggest carbon capture we've got so peat bogs obviously super important but there's a lot of carbon in our soil and when you dig it oxidizes goes up as carbon dioxide by not digging you keep your carbon in the ground so by sitting down, having a cup of tea and not digging your plot over, you're an eco-warrior. <laughs> you <know? laughs> just so, like that. Just like that, yeah. And you can feel dead pleased. So, it, yeah, it's, it's really productive. And I do it as affordably as possible because obviously I'm on a very tight budget and there are many different ways of doing no dig. And I'm trying out different kinds of mulches now. I'm in Wales, including um, sheep's fleece. Because that's a waste product, farmers are not getting anything really for it. So my local farmers give me some sheep's dags in particular, it's a pooey part of the fleece. So you get free poo with your fleece. Excellent. Trying that out as mulches. <laughs> you know, there's lots of different ways that you can garden with no dig. 
depending on your location and the resources you've got. It makes, to me, it makes common sense. Yeah, and science is backing it up now. So, 15 years ago, I didn't know I was working with mycorrhizal fungi. In fact, I didn't know mycorrhizal fungi existed. And now, our microscopes are showing how soil life works. We're getting to know more and more and more about soil ecology and soil biology. And it is a biological way of looking at growing. For so long, it has been a chemical way of looking at growing. You look at shop-bought plant feeds, and that is a chemical thing. And every year we're learning more. It's just so good. And the other exciting thing now is, so you've got this really healthy soil, you've got all these thriving microorganisms, and we now know that's really good for your gut health. And with good gut health, it's good for your physical and mental health. Now, it won't cure everything, but all of this is just going to help. So um, if you're growing food in healthy soil, you're going to be ingesting healthy microorganisms. Really interesting to hear you talk about it. It will become very much the norm. I think in the same way now more of us are peat-free, more of us are organic, more of us are wildlife gardening. None of these ideas are new. Organic and wildlife is as old as people have been growing, but for a long time we had this period of really not a healthy attitude towards our environment and we just know more and it's more accessible. You know, there's no one situation for everybody, but I think it will become far more normal. How can people find you, Stephanie, if they're interested in finding out more about what you do and following Conveniently, you? Conveniently, everything I do is my name. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look up Stephanie Hafferty, Stephanie with a PH, YouTube, Instagram, and my website is either stephaniehafferty.co.uk or nodighome.com and both go to the same website. Well, I look forward to learning more about No Dig because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Sitting in the gardener's restaurants, I'm joined now by peony expert, Alec White. Alec, thanks so much for meeting me here. Hi, it's great to be here on a really hot, sunny day. It's very hot. It's busy, you can hear in the background. There's a lot of people enjoying the show here today. I've been trying to talk to you for a number of months about your beautiful new peony book. And why did you decide to write a book about peonies? It's something I'd always wanted to do. And then COVID came along and that gave me the opportunity to sit down and um, put pen to paper. And in fact, writing the book wasn't, wasn't the difficult bit. That was quite straightforward. It was getting the images together for the book that really took the time. It took us about four years to collect all the images. We travelled up and down the country trying to get these photographs. And uh, it's important because I wanted the book to show peonies in a landscape setting as well, so you can see how they fit into a border, as well as just, you know, the beauty of the individual bloom. Well, it was definitely worth the wait because it is an absolutely beautiful book. Um, interesting to read, and of course, the images themselves just make you fall in love with peonies. So, congratulations on the book. But where did your love of peonies come from? Well, it started around about 2006, 2007. I was growing perennial plants in the nursery at the time, and I can recall coming out one summer's afternoon into the field, and all of the perennial plants were lined up in rows. It was a quintessential cottage garden scene, and standing head and shoulders above everything else were two blooms really striking one was a deep velvety red double flower and the other was a huge cream puff I mean it was enormous 
And I thought, what are those? That's insane. They were standing majestically. <laughs> and I went and had a look, and of course they were peonies. One was Peter Brand, and the other one is Festival Maxima. And from that moment on, I knew I needed to grow peonies. They were amazing. And we started with those two, and now we've got about 400 plus cultivars in commercial production. But, but it, it's dangerous. Once you start this passion, you can't stop, you know, and start collecting. So that's kind of where the passion for peonies came from. They're, they're pretty incredible plants. Now, there is a display here in the pavilion. You're from Primrose Hall Peonies. What's your favourite peony? That's a very unfair question, and I'm surprised that you're allowed to ask it. It's really tough. It is really, really tough. Um, it depends on what day of the week you ask me, and on what time of the year. I love all of them. I do, in different ways. In April, it's always a joy to me to see Claire de Lune in flower, as she's a very pale lemon, beautifully scented, slightly bluish tinge to the foliage, more lax uh, habit, so beautiful plant, does quite well in the shade as well. But that flowers very early in the year, and that's always a joy. I like Katharina Fontaine, which is on our display today as well, and you can smell it. It's got a really, really super strong, sweet smell. It's gorgeous, with a very pale pink blush double flower. It makes a great cut flower too. On the intersectional varieties, I like Lollipop, which is a bright yellow with purple flashes. It's really very striking. The great thing about that one is you get lots and lots of flowers, about 70 flowers per plant. And then later on in the season, things like Paul M. Wild, which is a gorgeous um, pillar box red double peony, and that flowers a little bit later in June. So there are hundreds. I didn't realise there are quite so many varieties. A lot of people might think that peonies, although they are beautiful, are really difficult to look after and, and short-lived. What's the easiest way to look after a peony? What do people have to do? Ah, well, I have four top tips now on how to get success with peonies. Excellent, love tip, top tips. <laughs> tip number one is buy your peony from me. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> well, it's important and I'll tell you why. Peonies don't tend to flower reliably until they're at least five years old. So it is important to buy a mature plant where the rootstock is well developed. Peonies start producing their flower buds in the autumn before they flower. So there's no point feeding them in season because it won't make them flower anymore. They've already done the work the previous year. But you have to have that mature plant to start with. And up until that maturity point, the flower shape can change, the flower colour can change. Everything's up in the air, which is a nightmare when you're breeding, of course, yes. because you've got to wait quite a long time to find out whether the plant you've got is worth keeping or not. So getting a plant at flowering maturity is tip number one. Tip number two is plant it in full sun or part shade, but the more sun, the better generally. If they are in the shade, you'll get a slightly better, stronger fragrance. And on that point, of course, many, many peonies are fragrant. So do look out for them. And if you have a look on our website, we've actually identified which ones we think are fragrant and otherwise. Top tip number three is plant it in the garden, in any soil you like, really, as long as it's free draining. They have to have free draining soil. It doesn't matter whether it's acid or alkaline, really. It doesn't matter whether it's clay or not, as long as it's free draining. And in fact, peonies like soil with a bit of guts. So if it has got some clay in, that's going to do really well. If you've got particularly light soil, it's chalky or it's sandy maybe, plant on top of a pad of organic material just to act as a sponge. And in those circumstances, you may need to feed once or twice a year with a slow-release granular fertiliser or something. But generally, they're not fussed about the soil they're in. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, you must plant the peony at the correct depth. And this isn't as complicated as people make out. For intersectional peonies and herbaceous peonies, so all the normal peonies you'd come across really, those plants want to be planted no more than an inch or so below the surface. And that's really, really important. 
And if you're the kind of gardener that is very diligent and mulches their borders and all the rest of it, don't. Because actually you'll bury your peony and you will stop it from flowering. So the major causes of well-established plants stopping flowering or not getting started flowering is they're either planted too deep or they've been buried over time or they're not getting enough sunshine. Peonies can live for decades and decades. So they might be a little bit more expensive to buy in the garden centre or online, of course, but they will last for decades. And it's not uncommon for peonies to last for 100 years or more. Goodness me, I didn't realise that. So in, in many respects, they are an inheritance plant yeah. and they will flower for decades. From time to time, you do need to give the plant more light and it will start flowering again, or indeed moving. And is that an okay thing to do, to move a peony? It's not a problem at all. Like everything, you've got to do it in the right way. So wait until the autumn, end of October time, when the plant is completely dormant, dig it up and plant it. And plant it straight away. Don't leave it in the garden for a few weeks while you think about doing something else with it. Plant it straight away. And remember, when you replant it, to plant it at the correct depth. Keep it nice and shallow and it'll be absolutely fine. Now we've been having some quite extreme weather in the UK over the last few years. How are peonies coping with the huge heat that we have and then the very, very cold and wet winters? Well, of course, peonies are fantastically beautiful and delicate looking flowers, but they're actually very, very tough. They're real survivors in the garden and in fact, they've been around for over 100,000 years. And if you look at the distribution of peonies around the world, they come from all sorts of different habitats and environments. From North America, where you've got uh, a couple of species that are in California, very hot, very dry, all the way through to the Mediterranean, the Caucasus, round through into Asia, Japan, China, Himalayas. So you can see there's a band around the world which is quite diverse, temperate, I would say, but we've got coastal areas, we've got prairie uh, areas, we've got mountain areas, and some more shady woodland areas. And peonies have learned to adapt to all of those circumstances, which is why they make such wonderful garden plants, <laughs> and they're very easy to grow. And in fact, peonies do need a period of 15, 16 weeks of sub 15 degrees in order to flower properly. So they need a cold winter. And they're hardy down to about minus 20, minus 25. So you don't need to worry about protecting your peony over the winter. And in terms of the sun, well, by the time the sun comes out, usually in late June, early July, the peonies are tending to, to wane a little. Their foliage is such that they cope very well in drought because underground they have these big fat tubers, like a potato storage root. So provided that's got enough water in it, that'll keep the plant going for a couple of years. So that helps them to survive pretty adverse conditions. It's one reason why it is a good idea to water your peony in late July, early August sometimes, because the roots are going to take that up and that's going to be really beneficial the following year. But they are, they are survivors and it's testament really to their strength that they've been around for so long. Moving forward, what plans do you have for peonies in the future? Is there a particular variety you're trying to cultivate or you'd like to try and create? Well, peonies are very much in vogue now and everybody seems to be growing them. For us, it's one of only two crops. We are a specialist nursery and we spend a lot of time on the peonies. We've got a national collection of peonies and we have uh, one of a handful of breeding programs around the world and we are looking to breed new varieties, but it takes a long time. It's a very slow process and that's why peonies are a passion, really. For those of us that breed peonies, and there's literally only a handful around the world, it's a passion because it will take 20, 30 years to bring a new product to market, by which time we're either old men or yeah. you know, 
fed up with waiting. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a number of varieties that we're working on at the moment. Keep plugging Wait away. Wait and see. He's not going to give us any information about that. Alec, it's been really lovely to talk to you and to find out more about your peony passion. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a hot but extremely interesting and inspirational day here at Gardener's World, live at the NEC. Thank you so much to everybody I spoke to. Really wonderful to meet you and to hear your gardening journeys as we learn and grow together. That's what it's all about. Back to you, Steve. Sounds like Claire's had a fantastic time up in Birmingham. She's threatening to take me to the Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival. So watch this space. Happy gardening. Growing Together is new twice a month and supported by Alitex, modern Victorian glass houses made in South Harting. Get the latest editions of Growing Together at any time at shineradio.uk. Come on, Petersfield, let's build a band. A beat from Dragon Street and a snare from the square. A bass from Penn's Place, a gliss from Liss. And a fill from Bell Hill. Ooh, some vocals from us locals. And the Dave Gilmore of Tilmore. Only Petersfield's Shine Radio plays original music from local musicians. The Local Showcase with Mandy P is sponsored by Brickyard Studios. Petersfield's professional recording studio, rehearsal space and PA hire. The Local Showcase, Thursday nights at 9 and always online at shineradio.uk.